I was tired. I was hungry. I was freezing. I was waiting for enough people to put enough into my plastic cup so I could buy fish and chips. Four lads walked past me, dressed in material privilege, drunkenly happy. One of them was going to put money into my cup when his friend said, Don't give them money, they'll just drink it. The lad hesitated and he looked at me. Will you drink it? he asked. I don't drink, I told him. I just want fish and chips. Right, hello, and welcome to another episode of Poetry to Your Ears. Uh, today we're here with Seamus. Hello. Hey. Hello, Seamus. Uh, Seamus, is, uh, Seamus Fox was born in Belfast and brought up in uh, Craigavon. 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 He's been writing since his mid-teens in many different formats and was very active in Belfast, especially around 2007, mostly with spoken word and occasionally comedy. In 2009, he won the All-Island Slam in Galway, and he published his first book, As Seen Through Staggered Eyes, the following year. Having experienced the absolute horror of alcoholism and the arduous task of getting sober, he realised the power of writing as a tool for understanding and changing. In late 2015, he moved to London to find work, and after several months, he found himself homeless. Seamus has been completely sober for more than seven years, and he has noticed a massive change in how he sees the world as a result of sobriety. Eventually, he found Emmaus, 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 Emmaus. <laughs> Do you want to say it again? The whole Eventually, he found Emmaus, <laughs> Emmaus, Emmaus. <laughs> say again. You can say Emmaus. It's okay. <laughs> Eventually, potato, we all say things differently. He undertook the writing of this book to give something back to the Emmaus family that he feels such a part of but also to raise awareness about the serious social issues surrounding homelessness and addiction. And that's the author about from No Homeless Problem and Other Poems. Uh, when did that come out? 2018, April 2018. Yeah, that's great. So what's different from the bio now? Is it just the same? Well, I live in Brighton now. I, well, I live in Hove and I work at uh, the EMS community at Port Slade. Um, and... Less than a year ago, I was living and working in uh, the Emmaus community in Norfolk. Mm. I was there for a year. So I've already moved communities twice since that book was written. Yeah, so what, How brought, long you did to, you... what brought you to Brighton? Oh, yeah. um, <laughs> the job. Uh, yeah, I applied right. for the job uh, and I got the job, the deputy retail manager's job Yeah, mm. at the Brighton community. How long did you work for Emmaus for then? Uh, I've been at Emmaus since uh, 2016. 2016, you, the beginning of 2016. So like seven yeah. years now. Yeah. 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 And um, you want to tell us a little bit about Emmaus, the work it does? And so Emmaus is a global organisation, started in France after World War II. Catholic priest called Abbe Pierre set the organisation up. Um, there were a lot of people, as a result of you know the end of the war and the occupation of France, a lot of people were destitute, uh, had no food, had nothing. Abbe Pierre started to get people to help each other, um, rather than you know people were coming to him asking him for help, and he couldn't help everybody, so he got people to help each other, and as a result of that, communities grew, 
and the movement has just gone from strength to strength. Um, and 31 years ago now, at the early 1990s, a man called Selwyn Image, who's a wonderful man, I know Selwyn, Selwyn well, he started the, the Cambridge community. He rang Abbey, Abbey PR after mm. speaking to homeless people in Cambridge when he was working in the soup kitchen. And people kept telling him that they didn't want handouts. They wanted a chance to rebuild. They wanted a chance to get something back. And he remembered Emmaus when he had been studying in France some 20 or 30 years earlier. And he got in touch with Abbey Pierre and the first community was set up, the Cambridge community, which was in mid-2021, we celebrated the 30th anniversary of Emmaus in the UK. Right, yeah. Yeah, so that's the first community you got involved in. Was it the first one in the UK as well? Yeah, well, no, well, Colchester was a Colchester for nine months uh, before that. And then, I, and then I ended up at Cambridge. It all started because I became homeless and I found Emmaus as a result of becoming homeless. I was working in London and I was completely sober uh, and I found myself homeless as a purely financial reasons because I couldn't afford the rent in North London. Um, it's, this is a new thing. Uh, lots of people struggling with this. What, what year was that? Uh, that was 2016. Right, yeah. Uh, like the end of the very end of 2015 and the beginning of 2016. Um, my friend uh, helped me. I wasn't actually homeless on the streets. My friend helped me. And I went and stayed with her and her boyfriend um, for a while. That was uh, at the very beginning of, of 2016. And they were near Colchester. So that was the nearest community. Mm. Um, and then they had the 25th anniversary of a mess in the UK was at that time in the, in the Cambridge community. And when I went to the Cambridge community, I just loved it. I thought it was a great community and I loved the feel of it. So I ended up there for nearly five years. Yeah. So where does poetry enter the story here? Yeah, poetry's always been, been there for me. Yeah, I, um, I want to say a little bit actually about how we met and uh, the circumstances we met. So we, we went to a poetry slam uh, competition hammer and in, ham, yeah, hammer, hammer and tongue in Brighton, and um, you went up and performed. And uh, the piece you performed was does it have a name? Uh, that was the one about Amy Winehouse. Yeah, uh, they tried to make her go to rehab. Yeah, which is still not completely finished. That was a that was a work in progress and is still a work in progress. I was just trying it out that night. Yeah, um, but I haven't. It's not actually finished yet. And so you you came up and you delivered you delivered the piece and you didn't have any paper in hand or anything. You were just doing it, you know, straight off the top of your head. Um, obviously, you knew what you were doing. You you practiced it beforehand. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but there was, you know, obviously you're not lacking for confidence. You do no. <laughs> in front of an audience. You don't get shy in front of an audience. No, I don't. I don't get shy, and I don't get nervous really. Um, I know the value of what I'm saying. Yeah, I'm, I'm aware of the value mm-hmm. of what I'm saying, and I believe in what I'm saying, and I believe that that what I'm saying is the right thing. Um, yeah. because of that. Yeah. So for so for the audience, the piece was about. They tried to get Amy Winehouse to get a rehab, mm-hmm. like the song, her, her popular song, and ultimately she died of alcoholism. Yeah. And so your piece, you want to talk a little bit about what your piece is about? That's, I mean, it's ironic. There, there's a certain amount of irony there that, you know, people supported Amy Winehouse 
uh, in this this bravado thing. Um, you know, oh, let her do what she wants. And she was dead less than five years so, and, later. And it's a really popular song, and it still exactly. is. Exactly, yeah. You know. and, but that says something culturally. That says something about us as a culture, you know, where that's okay. Alcoholism's okay. Mm. We're in this position where what we do is we, um, we argue a person's freedom against their health. That's a dangerous place to be, you know. Mm. I've lost people because of alcoholism. Uh, people really close. I lost my sister. Um, and awesome. I nearly lost myself. Yeah. I nearly died as a result of alcoholism. It nearly killed me. So you, so you come at this issue from a different place than the vast majority of people sure. come at it from, right? I, myself and people like me who are sober understand alcoholism on another level. It's not... The majority of people do not understand alcoholism. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm, I'm not only talking about people who don't drink at all. Mm. I'm also talking about people who drink. People yeah, who, yeah. who drink moderately and think they've got it under control. A lot of people don't have their drinking what, under uh, control. What about binge drinking? Well, binge drinking is a form. It, it, you know, alcoholism is progressive. And this is what a lot of people don't realise. Yeah. So gradually over a long period of time, it will get worse. I didn't just become a full-blown alcoholic overnight. I started drinking when I was 13 in an environment where everybody drank and everybody thought that that was okay. Yeah. And gradually over the next 10 or 15 years, I became an alcoholic. Wasn't a choice. Wasn't, you know, wasn't something that I was com- even completely aware of. And the cornerstone of addiction is denial. So if people would say to me, you might have a, a problem. What are you talking about? What do you mean I've got a problem? Yeah, I think I find your poems really powerful because they're just very specific and you go straight to the issue, you know, you're not playing around it. And you I feel like you're really self aware about what you're talking about. Um and that really comes across in, in the words you use, your performance, it just hits you straight. You know? Yeah, and we should point out that this performance, this particular performance, was in a brewery as well, yeah. <laughs> which was what was so, uh, you know, yeah, arresting, brave, shocking yeah. about yeah. it. Yeah, I mean, was there any? Uh, did you have any worries about that in terms of you know the owners or someone giving the, you trouble about that? If people want to give me trouble, they can come on ahead and give me trouble. <laughs> I'm not. Go- I'm not going to so, worry about that. So, so you didn't. You didn't pre. You didn't tell them beforehand. Oh, I'm gonna. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm not. I'm not worried it's a poetry about it. Night. Yeah, well, the thing is, I'm talking about issues, right? Um, If I'm talking about an issue and my my way of seeing things and my performance can potentially help someone, uh, and if somebody's choosing to, I don't know, think that that's wrong for some reason, just because of the venue, then that's their problem, not mine. Uh, Because part of the reason when I was trying to get sober, part of the reason why it took me so long was because there wasn't anybody talking about it. People don't yeah. talk about this stuff. People mm. are afraid to talk about this stuff. Did people come to you afterwards when you performed poems or you published poems to say that it helped them and they didn't feel as lonely? Like, did that happen? There have been lots of incidents. I have had lots of incidents. Um, my work with Emmaus, I do lots of talks and readings. And one of the things that I did, it was uh, when I was in Norfolk, I did a a reading just before Christmas in 2021 in St. George's Church in Norwich. 
And shortly after it, a woman sent me a Christmas card mm. to the Amaze community. And I still have it. I kept it. And she said that she thanked me. And she said that listening to me talking about addiction had helped her to understand what her brother was going through. That's what it's about. It's about reaching other human beings on issues that people are afraid to talk about because nobody wants to talk about this stuff. And as a result of it being so secretive and so guarded and so underhanded, people can't get sober. People mm. struggle with it more. And I just always wanted... I want to people to know that you can get sober. People can get sober. I remember not being able to stop drinking, physically not being able to stop, going through hell. And I know that now that I can, I could stop, even though it appeared at the time that I wouldn't be able to do that. So I constantly talk about this. I talk about it all the time. I'm very vocal. Every year on the anniversary of my sobriety, I write a post an essay specifically about it and I tell people about it to post to social media because one or two people are going to pick that up and somebody's going to get sober or somebody's at least going to think about sobriety as a result of that. Mm. And that's it. That's what it's all about. Yeah, and so this is the other thing. So when I, when I, we met you as well, when I first met you, you said, poetry saved my life. Yeah. It's the phrase you used. Yes. And that's a, it's a bold phrase. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Can you talk a little bit about that? that? That's kind of, it sounds like that's what you're touching upon there. As well. um, the, the thing with writing, or, or the, at least the kind of writing that I've always done, is that it's um, self-reflective. Uh, so I, I think about what's going on. Uh, I do, a lot of my stuff is observational, but a lot of my stuff is about myself and about my condition and about how my condition relates to that of other people. Ultimately, we're all the same. We're all going through the same thing. You know, Mm. slight differences, obviously, but we're all going through the same thing. What I found was that I was not self-aware. I was drinking every day. Uh, I was going through hell and I was suicidal. Uh, I was going I was going through a lot of turmoil and poetry helped me to look at myself. It helped me to see myself after the fact I was writing so much. I mean, in those days I was writing, I'm not even joking, I was writing 20 or 30 poems a day. At some points it was was like hypergraphia. It was constant. Mm -hmm. I was carrying pages around with me. I was like a lunatic sitting in the corner just writing all the time. Mm -hmm. Carrying pages around with you? Carrying carrying paper all the time. Always had loads of paper on me. And I would be writing. And when you look back on that now, what, what do you think that was? I was trying to understand right. myself. Yeah. I was trying to understand what was going on. Do you think it was a way of like having a conversation with yourself? That's exactly what it was. That is exactly what it was. Oh, that's incredible. Um, but it's also that I never, I didn't care what other people thought. Yeah. I was so mm. embroiled and so taken with the whole idea of what was, I knew that I was in trouble. I absolutely knew that I was in trouble. Even though I was drinking every day, in the in subconsciously, I knew I had this serious issue going on, and I had to do something about it. And my writing helped me do that. So what I was doing was I was writing the stuff, and then I was editing it, and I would go and I'd go to open spoken word nights, and mm. I would I would do it. And the All Ireland Slam was part of that. 
And yeah, so what what was the first time you you brought your material to a uh, a poetry night, a slam night? That was the Bookfinders Cafe uh, in um, Belfast. And how did you know that that was even a possibility for you to turn up to it? I just went and looked for it. Oh, you actually like seeked it. Yeah, I went and I went and looked Mm. for it. Yeah, I knew I knew at that point I had been writing for a long time. But at that point, I started to look at it and I thought, this is good. This stuff's good. And it's good enough that I can share it. Mm. So I needed to find an outlet for that. And I laugh about it now because in those days, I'm adamant that I created a performance poet. I actually made him Mm. in order that I could just stand on that stage and get all of that out of my system because it was clogging me up and it was in danger of killing me. It really was. Um, and I am adamant now that I created the performance poet just so I could do that. Mm. And it worked. <laughs> yeah. Would you like to share a poem with us? I'll do a poem for you, yes. Um, I'll do a poem called Angel. It's about a, a homeless man um, from Belfast. Angel sits by the blackened road contemplating broken bottles. In his mind, it is always yesterday. He only has one usable hand. The other is clenched, anticipating an attack that never transpires and pulsing solid energy. You can almost feel the tension carried there in that clutched, broken appendage. Angel's face is a battle map, points of distinction rising like dead soldier hills, purple, black, red mounds. His eyes are disappearing, his mouth is slow, His skin is riddled and corpse yellow, and he speaks fondly of the rain, as though it were an old friend who keeps coming back. He points intensively as he speaks, because mere words cannot convey all his indignity. Angel has no need of time or emotion. He wonders where it all went and where it all went wrong. He doesn't remember much having been mostly blacked out or deranged during a cataclysmic half-life. Yet, somehow he remembers nothing ever being enough. Angel is always alone, even in crowds and among the similarly afflicted. In their circumstantial gatherings, no one is truly alive and no one looks at or speaks about the sky. Angel knows his place and carries it as well as one can carry such a crooked, crossed metaphor. His self-victimisation is a direct reflection of never having been able to show his busted love. Angel seems aggressive, but when you go down to him, his eyes begin reappearing and there's a smile there behind those methylated lips. And I believe him when he tells me that he never wanted or expected any of it to happen. That's incredible. Yeah, so powerful. Um, you have a lot of pieces in that, so that's in, published in the book, uh, No Homeless Problem and other poems. And you say most of your poems in that book, they're about other people's stories. And so what you said just now before was that a lot of your poetry is about yourself and allows you to be more self-aware about yourself what made you want to take other people's stories and hold it into poems 
looking back uh, retrospectively when I, when I look back on things I can see that the reason why I was writing initially was because because of, of the, the, the self-awareness that I was trying to grow I was trying to understand myself I was trying to figure myself out and I think at some point I did that um, and then I think after I figured myself out I started to look out then mm-hmm. I've changed immensely in, in the last decade um, I've been sober now for more than 12 years and that, it, you, you, it's a difficult thing to explain. It's a difficult thing to, to, to even realise the, the depth of change there. Uh, and that's what it feels like to me, I, that I got to the point where I, I get myself now, I understand myself now, and it's almost as if I don't need to worry about that anymore. Um, so I started to look out. And I've started for look for to look for ways to to help others if I can, and I think it's just been a natural progression. That's great. It's such a spiritual journey you've been on. Yeah, more well, well, yeah. I suppose it it could be called spiritual in many ways. Um, I think I think human beings are naturally creative. I think all of us have got creativity in us, and I think the modern world stifles our creativity. The education system doesn't. You know, it doesn't look for creativity. It wants to create an effective workforce. Mm. Mm. Uh, And I think a lot of people, I think the reason why a lot of people are struggling is because they don't get in touch with their creative side. And it's important. I think it's really important. Mm. But the book was written specifically and it was planned that I was doing it for the organisation. I was doing it for Emmaus. Um, And the reason why I wrote it the way I wrote it was because I wanted to draw a parallel uh, between individualism versus collectivism. Mm, this is a very interesting topic. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah. I wanted to show that what I wanted to do was I wanted people to pick that book up and read through it and the uniformed nature of it with all the poems being written by me so they would have my signature on it. Mm-hmm. But then you would come against contradictions mm. where one poem would contradict another. So then people would would question it. Mm. What I was trying to show was was that homelessness is not about the individual. Homelessness is a collective social issue which affects tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people worldwide. When something is affecting that many people, it's not about individuals. And yet society judges the individuals mm-hmm. and blames them for homelessness. Homelessness is not the fault of the individuals. Mm. Homelessness is a result of society basically beginning to fall apart mm. and not being able to look after everybody. And I wanted to show that. And one of the other things that I did with the book, if you read the book, you'll notice that there are no labels in there. I've stripped all the labels out. So you won't know if the protagonist is a man or a woman. You won't know. That there's only one mention of a place name. I purposely because people look for labels they try to to focus on labels mm-hmm. and if you don't give people labels they'll have to look at what you're you're making them look at so that mm-hmm. was all all there was purpose in that so how many people did you talk to and in how many communities did you go to i went to do that book seven communities and and the community that i was living in at the time was the cambridge community so i did it through 2017 um I went to a community each month uh, and I stayed there for two or three days and I spoke to 44 people 
in all. Mm. And I got 71 poems. So some people... So how did, did you just have a conversation and then write it afterwards? Did you write with them? Did you record the conversation? How, how did that... I wrote at the time. So I would write the poems at the time. So I would be sitting having... Very often it was an hour or two. I would just sit down with the person and talk to them. And then I, I would talk to them about homelessness, their opinions on society and whatever came up. And then they would say something and they would say, tell me more about that, explain that to me. Mm. And then I, I, would, I would have a, a first draft before uh, we, we left. And then over the next couple of days, I would hone those, I would edit them. And then basically over, over the months from February to November 2017, I just gradually built it up. So, so you're firmly in the camp that poetry can change lives. There's so no it, doubt about that. Because, you know, there, there is a big debate, right, that goes back that says, you know, poetry is just this uh, pretty delightful thing. Yeah. Or it could, or is it actually something that can change politics, change people's lives, change social circumstances? And you really do feel strongly that... Uh, yeah, there's no doubt yeah. about that. I think. I mean, you, I mean, you testament yourself, right? I mean, that's. I think what the, you're saying the more controversial thing is that can it change politics? Can it change at a structural right. level? Because, of course, it can touch people. Yeah. Like uh, many art forms, but can, can it, it change, change? Can it change collectives? So, yeah. Did you? What's your experience with that book? The way it travelled and. Well, I mean, that book's still selling. We've sold four thousand copies of that book. Since 2018, since it came out. Right. I think one of the major problems with society in general is that people talk too much <laughs> and they don't act enough. You know what I mean? Yeah. So d- d- but poems it, is a lot of talking as well. Yeah, I know, but it, it's it's very specific. What, what, I, what When I say people people talk too much, I'm talking about... There's this whole, whole thing in society where people just automatically want to um, go against everything they hear. So if somebody has a differing opinion... People feel like they have to argue against that. You don't mm. have to do that. I used to do that. I used to be very angry and very, very confrontational. And I think being confrontational is okay uh, if it's going to do some good. But the majority of people are just confrontational for no reason. And it's, it, it's completely, it lacks, lacks any construct. Uh, I want to go back to when you said you, you find that people don't have a lot of opportunity to be in touch with their own creativity and that creates a, a hole into people's existence. Your experience of coming and talking to people and writing a poem out of the interaction, did it have an impact in, in the way they perceived their own creativity? I don't know about that specifically. I don't know if it did. I know there was one poem in particular... Um, that I wrote it and I gave it to the guy and he had only been homeless for a short time. And, no, sorry, he had only been out of homelessness for a short time. He had only been in the community for a mm-hmm. short time. And he was talking about sleeping on the floor. So we had a room and he had a bed, but he was sleeping on the floor in his sleeping bag. Because that's what he was used to. Mm. And that's what I wrote the poem about. Which, and, which poem? Um, do you want me to read it? Yeah, please. Yeah. Um, which one is it? It's a, great, it's a great metaphor, isn't it? Because it's like 
your comfort zone is not necessarily comfortable. It's you know, it's, yeah, it's where you're used to. It's what you kind of expect for yourself. What the level that you think you deserve. Yeah, I mean, people just get used to what they're used to. Um, yeah, you don't know any different. People don't know any different, and you know, we, we're very big on intention. We we think everything's intentional. I don't think mm-hmm. anything's intentional. I don't think anybody actually chooses to do anything because I think everything that happens to people happens as a result of other things. Mm. And your ability to choose is diminished by circumstances, by how much money you have, by other people who might be controlling you or, or, or co- co- coercing you. You know what I mean? There's, there's just so mm. much involved. Poetry Two Rears is a podcast sponsored by Fawn Press, an indie press that publishes poetry that takes you by the hand and leads you into the woods. You can get 10% off all books on their website, www.fawnpress.co.uk, with the code POETRY10, as small letters, POETRY10. You will find the code and the link in the description below. Thanks for supporting small businesses. Poetry to your ears is now sponsored by Benki Publishing. Benki Publishing is an indie micro-publisher that champions neurodiverse artists and writers from other marginalized groups. So you can get a 10% discount on all books with the code poetry to your ears 10 This code doesn't apply to zines, but it covers all books on their website which is www.bentkeypublishing.co.uk. The code and the website link will be written in the episode description. We hope you find a poetry book you like and tell us on social media if you purchase one. Now, back to our conversation. So this poem is called Comfortable with a question mark. I was out there so long So many years spent living like a wild animal, it became normal. I eventually got help and found my way to an Emmaus community, but the comfort and love and normality was something I was not accustomed to. In my room, I kept my old rucksack and sleeping bag that I had with me out in the streets. Every now and then, I would take out the sleeping bag and sleep in it on the floor. Physical comfort and mental comfort are not always as precise as people may believe. Mm. So I wrote it. I wrote a first draft. I gave it to him. And I was leaving. I was in Hull. And I was leaving the next day. And I was walking across the car park. And he came over to me to shake my hand. And he was crying when he was shaking my hand. And I said, are you okay? And he said, yeah. He said that he donated the sleeping bag and rucksack to the shop because he didn't need them anymore. He said mm. he didn't need them because of that poem. Mm. It allowed him to reflect on the situation and say... Yeah. And <laughs> I walked down the road to the train station, cram, I was crying my eyes out. Yeah. I just flooded with tears walking, down, walking home to the train station. And it was like, that's power of language. That's the power of being able to to look at yourself or to look at somebody else 
and give them something. And it's self-reflection. And were you were you always this in touch with your emotions, this sensitive, you know, when you were younger, like in your 20s? I was when I was younger. Um, I've always been sensitive. Uh, but I lived in a world that was the opposite of that. Mm. So you, you grow with that. Mm. You grow with what, what's going on. And you end up being a product of the world that you live in. A lot of people don't like to admit that because it's easier to blame the individual. Individuals are the least and last effective thing. They're the last thing to come along. You know, before all of the individuals that are alive right now were alive, there was already a very, very established order which had been here for a very, very long time. So individuals change things much, much less than we realise. And I think the change has to begin with, with you in yourself. And that's one of the major mistakes that humanity is making because we're trying to change everybody else and everything else instead of looking at ourselves first and foremost. And I think that's what's wrong with us. You know, I started drinking when I was 13. I didn't choose to start drinking. That's what everybody did. And I didn't know any different. Mm. And I couldn't say that I'm going to do this or I'm going to do that. I was young and that's the way it was. Yeah. Mm. But I, I mean, that was a collective cultural thing as well, though. Even, I mean, in England as well as in Ireland, right? The kind of drinking culture. Yeah. You know, so yeah. th- that's part of it as well, right? That we're born into those cultures. Yeah, that's it. Exactly. Know? That's what I mean. And that's the reason why, um, you know, when I talk about uh, the individual not being in control, people don't like that. People don't like that idea because that means that, you know, um, nobody's going to be blamed. But that's not what it means. That's the thing. There's a difference between understanding something and condoning it. Mm. I'm not saying that it's okay, but we do need to understand. Yeah. There's something I'm intrigued um, about your experience. So you did this big collective project of putting this book together in 2017 and you know you expressed other people's stories and you told the overall message uh for society through these poems how did that evolve into your future poetry that you write now i don't know um i don't think it did i just think that since i started i've just been on on this constant like I go up and down, I go in and out. You know, I didn't do spoken word for years until recently again. I picked it up again Mm. because I was concentrating. I wrote another book which has not been published yet, which is Mm -hmm. non-poetry, after I wrote that one. Is it fiction book or non-poetry? No, it's it's, uh, about addiction. It's a Mm -hmm. book about addiction. Um, I've had a couple of rejections on that, but it's it's really, really big. It's like 95,000 words and it's a book book. It's a proper book, yeah. just about addiction. But it's about addiction from the, both the angle of the individual and the collective, mm-hmm. where I look at things in a very, um, in a very deep uh, manner, where I, where I really focus on, on not only the person, but the environment that the person grew up in. Mm-hmm. And, and the reality that alcohol is, is socially acceptable, readily available. And for people who live in certain circumstances, it's absolutely inevitable that they're going to become alcoholics. Mm. 
So, so just to be clear, where, where do you stand on alcohol in, in general? I mean, I don't think anybody should drink. Yeah, I honestly you, you, think you, you mentioned at I mean, at the poetry, uh, the slam, um, in the brewery, you you said you know oh, if it, if if they discovered it alcohol today, it wouldn't be legal. Yeah, you know, and um, actually, Eloise and I were having a debate about whether you meant that you know you you were for like getting rid of it or you can't or get rid of just, it you yeah. can't you can't just click your fingers and get rid of something like that i don't think people who have a drink problem should be drinking but i live in a world where drink is socially acceptable and readily available so i can't do anything about that you know um where i stand with alcohol is is i know i can't drink uh, and i wish that a lot of other people wouldn't but they're going to but I don't. I would not be for prohibition. Prohibition doesn't work. Prohibition never works. Mm. Uh, it's the same as drugs. Drugs. It it would actually be better if drugs were legal. Mm. To be honest with you, because it would be safer. I mm. um, think it would cut down crime. I think. I think that's the main thing. Mm. I think crime's the main thing. Uh, anything having any making anything illegal. Is automatically going to going to push it into the black market. Um, with regard to alcohol, uh, some cultures have got uh, healthy respect for alcohol. Like uh, France, France, France <laughs> has, collectively, France does have a, a healthy respect for alcohol. We don't here, Ireland and and England, Scotland, Wales don't, uh, and a lot of other cultures don't either. Um, it's. Not an easy question. Yeah, I, I feel like I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that I enjoy drinking. Yeah. And, I, I, well, speak for yourself. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I enjoy drinking too. I don't yeah. drink that much, but yeah, I do. I, I, Weekends and stuff like mm, that. Yeah. But, yeah, I just think it's important to flag that up. And, yeah, I'm not, I mean, not, like, not anti-drink. I'm, I'm just uh, kind of thinking about whether France has a healthy relationship to alcohol because... Probably not as much as the UK, but yeah, still... it's comparative. It, it, yeah, 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 yeah. I think that the well, the UK there's still and a the UK issue has of alcoholism like in France as well, you know, mm. and um, yeah, like the starting drinking as a teenager is very common. It's not very regulated. Mm. You can just go into a shop and you know buy alcohol. Like it doesn't. We don't need to give an ID to go into a pub or something. Yeah. I, f I think, like, the... For, for like, I don't know, the average person, I think it's a bigger problem in the UK because it's kind of like a binge-drinking culture. Yeah, yeah. Like, for go going extreme, you know, always yeah, going for broke. Yeah, I just wonder if the solution would be more into the culture or regulations or education. I don't know. Yeah, well, think, you're saying it's culture. <laughs> I, th I think it's cultural, but I think something needs to change with, with the... If people's lives are fulfilled, if people are leading purposeful lives, there will be less reason for them to turn to alcohol and drugs. I don't even mm. think about drugs and alcohol now. It's not It's not a consideration. Mm. I don't worry about it um, because I'm doing good. But I wasn't mm. doing good before. And when people are lacking in their lives, when they're depressed or anxious... Well, there's always something wrong. Alcohol's an easy fix. Yeah. 
Would um, you like to read us the last one? Yeah, yeah, that's what yeah? I was just going to say, yeah. <laughs> okay, um, what am I going to do? Um, right, okay. One thing, mm-hmm. just just one thing with regard to the whole alcohol thing. One of, one of the, the, the parallels that I draw and one of the things that I talk about is the comparison with something else. If there was a food on the market which was killing 25,000 people a year, would they still sell it? No. No, they wouldn't. It would be banned. Alcohol kills 25,000 people a year in Britain alone, and yet it's legal. That says something about our relationship with alcohol culturally. And this is not about whether or not it's okay to drink or whether or not some people don't have a problem with it. It's a collective issue. Uh, and one of the major issues that we're having is that we are not addressing these collective issues. So the last poem I'm going to do is called This Is Not Your Country. Okay, I get it. I understand. You were born here. Maybe your parents were born here. But even if the parents of your parents' parents' parents were born here, this is not your country. Winning a coincidental genetic lottery and subsequently being raised within particular geopolitical boundaries does not make this your country. It just makes you lucky. Why can you not appreciate your good fortune instead of turning it into tribal bragging rights? This is not your country. Nationality is not something you choose. So not only is your pride misplaced, it's fake. And the anger which you mistakenly call passion that follows your fake pride cannot be excused. While you accuse the innocents and refuse to admit to your own senseless indefensible ignorance, you're overlooking something. None of this belongs to you. This is not your country. Migration and immigration are facts of human life, whether it's for work, for worth, or to escape tribal strife. People have always migrated and immigrated. Has everyone forgotten how America, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, among others, were founded? Why is the human preoccupation with empire being so understated? Human beings have always been moving and thus reviewing and shifting our cultural and genetic dispositions. We are citizens of this earth. First, we are citizens of this earth, actually, evidently, figuratively and literally. And I may even be a little sorry that I have to say to you that this is not your country. And before anybody starts thinking I'm just another rebellious mick living in England, come here to tell you something. When I was living in the country, which is supposedly my country, you know, where people can't agree upon a nationality, I was telling people there, this is not your country. Because I'm not just talking about this country or that country, I'm talking about every country. Countries are just bits of the earth that we inhabit due to the circumstance and chance of birth. None of this belongs to you or him or them or her. No one owns the land, the sky, the sea or the air, not the government, the queen or the king, the rich, the poor, the living, the dead and definitely not me. So even though so many minds are confused and polarised, I still recognise the absolute value of human equality. None of this earth belongs to anybody and I'm really sorry. But this is not your country. <laughs> Marvellous. Thank you. 
I think you won Eloise's heart with that poem. <laughs> Good feel. We're in the same boat with yeah. that regard, aren't we? We're both foreigners. Yeah, and, and I'm always talking about the impact of colonialism in today's yeah. politics. So. Yeah, 100%. That stuff's forgotten about. We need we need to remember this stuff. And never the tells past me, cost casts a long shadow. No one tells me you're not welcome here in the UK because France has a, you know, being white, being French has a good reputation in the UK. Yeah. And people don't understand that other people have the exact same experience that I do. Yeah. It's just that mm. they're perceived differently. Yeah. And if I could live here, why can't? Exactly. We're all, we're all the same. <laughs> There's a brilliant cartoon of a, a really large gunboat uh, and a really small dinghy with some migrants in it. And the person in the gunboat is saying, where are you from? And one of the people in the in the in the dinghy said, "Earth." Yeah. <laughs> it's it, it, a clever thing you do in the poem as well. Of course, is um, a spoken word piece. Is you know, it's it's a question as to who you're saying mm. or who who that who refers to when to. you're saying you know it's not your country, and it's something that like you say, immigrants, refugees, etc. People just from other countries. They've been told, yeah. But obviously the the poem is flipping that on its head and you're saying that about the native. Yes, well, well, it's about all of us. My mother walked around London in the 1960s with my eldest sister, Stephanie, in her arms, a little baby, and there were signs in the boarding house windows that said, no Irish, no blacks, no dogs. Yeah, funny enough, I mentioned that in the... the, um, And that's true. A lot of people think... Yeah, a lot of people think that that's a myth. That's true. My yeah, mother witnessed it, that. Well, the, the previous episode we had... Um, uh, she said, Danny, yeah. yeah, she said that she read that it was a myth. No. Yeah. It happens. So, it's well, real. It's, it's interesting. The, no, she the read episodes. that someone, <laughs> someone said it was a myth. Yeah, and yeah. she said, does it matter if, yeah, it's, she wasn't if it's a myth or if it's something else that said... Because in the article it was someone who said, that's a myth, but they said something else yeah. that was equally offensive. Mm. So The but, thing about yeah. it is it's older Irish people and older older black people experience that in the 50s or 60s yeah, and even even if you know i don't know but even if that sign didn't exist the feeling definitely existed mm-hmm. yeah and I, my family history is i'm half irish yeah um, from my family and you know i know from their stories uh you know my grandma was an immigrant uh to england and so i know from their stories as well so it's mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, it's, We're all it's something that happened all of us are immigrants mm-hmm. people are forgetting this None of us are pure. There's no such mm. thing as purity. We're all immigrants. We've all came from everywhere, you know. 11 or 12,000 years ago, there were very few people here and the people came here from Scandinavia and they walked across a land bridge that was connecting France to England. Mm. People, are, people are all from planet Earth. We're all mm. from the same place. I think it's a good sentiment to end the episode on. Yeah, I just wanted to touch on one thing before we, yeah, fi- we uh, wrap, wrap up, up actually. Up and, um, you know, you, your voice is so powerful. And, you know, you have this Northern Irish accent as well for, for us here. Um, but in general, as, as a personality, your your voice is strong. And like you say, you're confident of what you're saying because you're confident of the strength in it. How does that play into your writing, what you pick to perform. Um, do you find it difficult to perform soft pieces? <laughs> it, it, you know, it, it, it colours the impression that you get. I'm chilling out as I get older. <laughs> I, was, I, was a lot more, I was a lot more aggressive yeah. when I was younger. Mm. Uh, but that came from growing up. Uh, 
in a harsh world. But it really adds to the performances yeah. that, you, that you deliver as well. You do, so, you do great in protests. So, so it's a, so <laughs> thank you. It's it, it's a different experience reading you as opposed to hearing you perform. So you know people should check you out. Yeah. Live, right? well, yeah. I'm, where can they yeah. check out your work? Well, I'm all over the place. I'm I'm doing lots of stuff on the south coast in Worthing, Shoreham, uh, and and in Brighton. Um, the the Duke of Wellington has an open mic uh, the second Thursday of every month. Um, and then there's a collab is uh, on the houseboat Verda. Um, that's like the third Sunday of every... You, you check them out online. Um, that's in Shoreham as well. Um, and then there's um, World of Mouth run by Joe Bunn. Um, that is in both the Rose Hill in Brighton and in uh, the Cellar Arts Club in Worthing. And I've got a group of poets. We're calling ourselves the Anti-Poverty Poets. And we're doing poetry... Uh, specifically about the cost of living crisis and homelessness. Mm. Yeah. Thank you so much for being on the show. It was a great pleasure to talk Thank to you. Thank you for asking me. Really appreciate it. It's been fantastic, guys. Thank you. Good talking to you. Good Thanks talk. for listening and see you next time. Thank you for listening to Poetry to Your Ears. This podcast is published as a newsletter on Substack. All of our content is published for free, but if you would like to support our work, you can become a paid subscriber. This will help us support transcripts for the deaf and hard of hearing community and anyone who would benefit from reading the podcast alongside hearing it. You can also support us for free by rating the show on Spotify and Apple Podcasts or writing a review on Apple Podcasts. Share the show with your friends, fellow poets and poetry lovers. If you want to interact with us, you can follow us on at poetry to your ears on Instagram and at poetry to number two your ears on Twitter. Or you can also write a comment on Substack. If you're American and you're listening to us, send us a message. Half of our listeners are American. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time.